series um, in Jonah, so obviously we're going to turn to the book of Matthew. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew, and we're actually going to be in Jonah in just a, in just a few minutes. Actually, turning to Jonah would be a good move because we're going to spend the majority of our time there. But Jesus talks about Jonah. Uh, we're, this is a, a, we're, we're taking a four-chapter book and doing a three-week series on it, so it's really kind of an overview, but it's something that's super important, and it's important to take serious because Jesus took it seriously. Um, it's easy to chalk it up to this mythological fantastic, um, maybe a, a po- like just within a poetic genre uh, of, of scripture and not realize that Jesus took it as a historical event. So if Jesus takes it as a historical event, we will too. And so uh, he talks about it in Matthew chapter 12. So if you could stand for the reading of God's word, this is Matthew, who again is somebody that no one would have picked onto their team if they wanted to start a great world religion. And yet Jesus did. Jesus chooses Matthew. He chooses the guy that other people would, who, he ticked off tons of people, would not have wanted, uh, he, he was someone who, again, we would not have selected and yet God selected him. And the cool thing about that is that we, thankfully, because of that, we have an accounting we have an eyewitness accounting of what happened with Jesus. So this isn't just like, I heard this from a friend whose grandma was there. Matthew was one of the people that, that heard and saw Jesus say these things. So that's why it's so important. All right, so in chapter 12, verse 38. Some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right. So... I think everybody is familiar with this person. Who is that? Mary Poppins. That's right. I love this movie. 1964 came out. I wasn't around when it first came out, but I saw it plenty of times growing up. Love Mary Poppins. I'm not going to ask if you like Mary Poppins or not because I don't want to judge you. Um, Pastor Eric says that he hates this film, and so you can tell he's not really a good person. But I love this film. And I even love in 2013 when, um, when the, a movie came out about the making of that movie. A movie where uh, Walt Disney is played by Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson plays um, the author of Mary Poppins, P.L. Travers. And the, the whole movie is about Hanks trying to get the rights to the books to be able to make the movie Mary Poppins and begging and begging this author who does not want to release the rights. And you ultimately see throughout the course of the film, all of those stories aren't just fictitious tales that she just came up with. They're an echo of her childhood, an echo of her upbringing. And, and, but, and Disney's just like, why? I, I don't understand. Why would any author not want their work to be published and showcased for the whole world? And you ultimately see that the reason that P.L. Travers does not want her work published is because Disney's going to screw it up. He's going to turn it into this happy-go-lucky, fanciful, light-hearted thing that it's actually, again, a reflection and an echo of her childhood, which was traumatizing. And so Disney, finally, finally the movie gets almost to the done. They're almost ready to release the film. We've got a couple of things to fix. And all of a sudden, in the midst of that, uh, P.L. Travers puts the kibosh and just basically the deal is dead. Disney will not be able to make Mary Poppins. It is not going to happen. And so he flies to England to meet with her face to face and he begs her. He begs her to be able to, he says, why, why is it that you don't want the world to see Mary Poppins 
as she came in, and she came into those kids' lives and rescued those kids. And P.L. Travers just freaks out. She says, you don't understand, you don't understand. And she starts to tell a little bit of her life story, and that's when Disney has this revelation, and he says, Mary Poppins was never there to rescue the children. Mary Poppins was never there to save the children. Mary Poppins was there to save Mr. Banks, their father. And so the movie became called Saving Mr. Banks. As well, I love this film. It's so cool. And it helps you understand that the, this story that everyone's super familiar with actually had another story and helped you understand that the redemptive ending to, to uh, Mary Poppins, where you've got them, let's go fly a kite, the scene where, where he actually stands up, Mr. Banks stands up to the bank and he's there for his children, was actually the redemptive piece that was necessary for P.L. Travers to be able to sign off on it. That, that we had been miswatching the movie all of these years. Similarly, with the book of Jonah, we have come accustomed to a story where we understand this to be God calls this prophet Jonah to go and save Nineveh. They ultimately repent and then Nineveh is saved and everyone lives happily ever after. And if that is your abbreviated version of the story of Jonah, you have misread Jonah. You haven't read the whole four chapters. Because that book, this little book, this little four-chapter prophetic book that's, that's floating in the Old Testament actually speaks into the deeper reality that the book is not about saving Nineveh. The book of Jonah is about saving Jonah. Jo- the book of Jonah is about saving Jonah, that Jonah is the one that is in need of being saved. So what we're going to be doing over the course of the next couple of weeks here is simply this. Chapter one today, we're going to be talking about God, how God wants to save Jonah by bringing him to his senses returning to his senses. Next week, we're going to talk about chapter two and three, returning to God's grace. And finally, we're going to round off chapter four, returning to God's heart. But before we can understand what God is rescuing Jonah from, we have to understand who Jonah is. And we get that in the very beginning. So if you've got your Bibles, look at chapter one. There's a bunch of stuff in here that's worthy of underlining in your Bibles. Uh, But take a look at chapter one, verse one. It starts off this way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, that may mean nothing to you, but apparently it meant a lot to them because there's no further description of who Jonah is. We, all we know is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah is a super common word back in the ancient world for this people group, but to identify Jonah, son of Amittai, and to understand that he's a prophet, everybody knows who he is because there's no further explanation on him as far as his backdrop, his background, or his pedigree to, to be called to this task. So we understand that, this, that Jonah is a prophet. He gets the word of the Lord, and he's a known prophet. Now, this is what prophets did. Prophets would get the word of God, and give it to the people of God. They would get the word of God and give it to who? The people of God. And so basically, Jonah and all the other prophets would get the word of God, and then the word of God to the people of God was often calling them out, calling them to repentance, calling them to step up or step out, or sometimes it was encouraging, but usually it was course correcting. Get the word of God and give it to the people of God. That's what a prophet would do. He served during the time of Jeroboam II, which was 786 BC to 746 BC. And the interesting thing about Jonah that sets him apart is Jonah was not the only prophet in this northern kingdom of Israel time frame. There was Amos, there was Hosea, but they did something Jonah didn't. They called out the king for his unfaithfulness. They called out the king for his injustices. Jonah looks the other way. 
And that's because Jonah is a super, super pro. He's pro the uh, platform and the agenda of the king. The king was, had this military perspective that was super aggressive. It was going to not just defend the country, but it was going to advance the territory and the scope of the influence of the, of the territory. And doing so, where he was doing things God was not calling him to do. The other guys called him out. Jonah was super, uh, he was a fan, even a fanatic for it. Some scholars say that as far, he was like the most pro-Israeli, anti-everybody else type out there. He was, he was uber patriotic on the side of nationalism with regard to Israel. And so basically it's like, God cares about us. He doesn't care about anyone else so they can burn. I don't care about them. So what does God call this massively important uh, person, this massively important prophet who's super pro-Israel, super xenophobic? What does he call him to do? Next verse tells us, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Okay, now first off, great city, that doesn't mean like, woo, it's awesome. This place is Naperville, man. They got restaurants, they got sweet parks. It's fantastic. It's talking instead, great city is more like, like as far as the scope of influence and power and everything else. Like, for example, Manhattan. There's a Manhattan, New York, and there's a Manhattan, Illinois. They're different. Like, you'd pick up on the difference if you drove down the main street of Manhattan, Illinois, or Manhattan, New York, right? And it's not saying that one's better than the other. It's just saying that as far as the greatness and the magnitude and the influence and the power, Manhattan, New York has got Manhattan, Illinois beat. And so when he's talking about the great city of Nineveh, he's saying this is magnificently powerful. And that's no joke because Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, of the Assyrian Empire, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And when I think about Nineveh and Ninevites, and I didn't even connect it to the Assyrian Empire, I just thought of Nineveh, and I thought of like what I grew up with in Sunday school, and I got totally cheated by my Sunday school teachers, because they taught me with flannel graph, and flannel graph is generally G-rated. You have just like this, this like flannel board with like a scene, and then all of a sudden, here's Jonah, and here's a couple of Ninevites, and the Ninevites... I mean, they just look like the Israelites with a different wardrobe change. I mean, that was it. I mean, that was like, I had no backstory on them. And this is why I was cheated. The place God is calling Jonah to is described by historians this way. The emperors are well known for depicting torture and dismembering the decapitations of enemies in grisly detail in large stone relief panels. So they would have artists outline what they would do to their enemies. As far as torture... They did the math and they showed the work. It was all over the place. Additionally, one scholar noted the Assyrian, uh, the Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. Enemies that weren't killed in battle, enemies of Assyria that were not killed in battle had their legs cut off and one arm cut off, but they would leave the other arm and the other hand in place. You know why? So as the person is bleeding out and crying in, 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 their, in their pain, they could shake their hand and look them in the face and go, have a great day. And they continued. They forced family members to carry poles with the decapitated heads of their loved ones in parades through their town after they would take that town. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched out their bodies so they could be filleted alive and the skins displayed on city walls. None of that was in the flannel graph. None of it. I was, seriously, I was getting a G-rated story for an actual R-rated story. They have been called a terrorist state, and they were a great threat to Israel's northern kingdom national security. These are the 
bad guys. These aren't like, well, maybe they're misunderstood. No, they're not misunderstood. They are super bad. And they're like they're the type of place that as a, someone who loves your country, you don't go to that country to actually like do anything that was going to be anything but like torch them, okay? And so who does God select for this unorthodox mission? Who does God select? He selects one of the most bigoted prophets you're going to find, the most absolute Israel-centric prophets you're going to find to go outside of Israel and extend something that could potentially be peaceful to them. I mean, this is like, I mean, I remember Toby Keith and his song back after 9-11, courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue? Okay, instead of Toby Keith writing that song, it would be like Toby Keith going to the Taliban himself, flying on a bald eagle, and landing there and extending to them like this, this, this peace, like we just want to be friends. Can we just call it a, can we call it a day? And it's absolutely ridiculous it would be for Toby Keith to do that. Everyone who knew who Jonah was would say it would be absolutely ridiculous for Jonah to do that. So Jonah does whatever, whatever, what you or I would do, to be honest. He does this, next verse. But Jonah ran away. He ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Tarshish is like the exact opposite side of the world from Nineveh. Like if you took a globe, if you took a map and you said, here's Nineveh, how can I get as far away from this? For the known world, it would be Tarshish. So he's not even like hiding the fact that he's running away from God. He's booking it in the opposite direction as fast as he can. He, went, he goes down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Why? Why did he do that? For two reasons, I think. Maybe more, but two that I can think of. One, he's, he's not stupid. This is not in his job description. This is a suicide mission. This is, this is like, I mean, think about like in World War II era, like 1940 Berlin. How long would a Jewish rabbi last on the streets of Berlin calling out the Nazi party for their atrocities and calling out Adolf Hitler? How long, calling them to repent of their sin. How long would that rabbi last in the streets of Berlin in 1940? Seconds. And Jonah knew the same was for him. And so the first reason he bolts is he's like, God is calling me to do something I don't trust God with. But the second reason is a little bit more intense. We're going to get this a little bit more in the third week. He doesn't like God's tone. Have you ever talked to someone where the words are fine, but the tone is like off? And you're like, I don't like your tone. That's how Jonah is with God. I don't like your tone. You're telling me to go and preach wrath of God and destruction upon Nineveh, all of which I'm a fan of. But you have this caveat, and you have a way about you, God, that if they repent, that, they're going, that you would actually show them grace. And here's the problem I have with you, God. I'm a prophet. And again, what does a prophet do? The prophet takes the words from God and gives it to the people of God. I'm from the northern kingdom of Israel. I take the words of God. I give it to the people of God. These are the people of God. But what you're calling me to do is take your words, the words of God, and give it to those people. Why would you call a prophet to take the words of God and give it to those people unless you were open to the fact that those people could become your people? And that's a bridge too far. I can't, that's not tenable. I can't stomach that. For those people to become my brothers and sisters? No, those are the people that are open to your wrath and destruction. Your love, your grace is supposed to be for our people. And so he runs away from God because he 
ultimately doesn't trust God. He, doesn't, he needs to come back to his senses. And if he would have asked the question why, that would be a key part. In fact, that's, that's for all of us. If we want to come back to our senses, if we want to return to our senses with relationship with God, we need to ask the same question. Why do I run from God? Why do I run from God? Why is it that, and here's the thing, there's two, like you could split humanity into two parties. With regard to the one true God, you're either going to have people running away from God because they're irreligious or because they're too religious. The irreligious people say, I don't trust God because I don't believe in him. I'm not going to shape my life and my my decisions around this God I don't believe in. So I'm going the other way. That makes sense. That's logic. The weird thing is, is for Jonah and for you and for me. No, I believe in God. I totally trust God with my salvation. I just don't trust him with my life. Like he calls me to do things and make decisions. I, I don't know. I don't, I can't trust that. I can't trust him. Because like, I, I, at the bottom of it, I, I don't know if God really is in my corner. If he really, because there's things that I want to do that actually would promise me better pleasure, better outcomes than if I listen to what God wants me to do. And so you have people that are followers of God saying, well, you know what? At the end of it, honestly, I, I feel like maybe I'm like, maybe I'm drinking way too much. And I need to get that, that fixed. But they, that, and that's good. If you want to like, if you've got an addiction to drugs, if you've been like taking drugs because you're like, this is what I'm doing, or you've been drinking too much because that's just what you're doing. And you're like, I feel conviction about that. Ask the question, not, don't just eradicate those things from your life. Ask the question why you're doing it. What are you running from in your life? What are you trying to escape? What is it in life that's not serving you everything that you should be having that makes making that decision necessary? If you're struggling with pornography and you're like, I, just, I need to stop watching porn. Great, that's awesome. But you should be asking a question on top of that. Why? Why do I pursue watching this? Why do I find myself watching this over and over and over again? When we ask the question why, ultimately we get down to the fact that we don't trust God. And that, that's the thing that is, as followers of God, we need to, to come to our senses because we can trust God with everything. We can actually trust God with our life. Even when he's calling us to do things that are out of the realm of what we want to do, we can trust him. In the account, it goes like this in the next verse. Then the Lord sent a great wind to on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Okay, how many of you have been in like in a super, super deep sleep and it was just like absolutely like you were dead to the world? Okay, if you're running from God, if you're pursuing running away from God in your heart, like you've been like trying to maintain addictions and I'm still a Christian, but I'm still like got these addictions in my life or I'm still a Christian, I'm holding on to these things or whatever. It's exhausting. It's like drink the full bottle of NyQuil, exhausting. And that's what he's experiencing. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then The sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. Again, they're doing everything in their power as experienced sailors to figure out a a way to get out of this problem and nothing is working. This is the worst situation they've ever been in. And so what happens when people get really freaked out? They get religious. And so these religious guys are basically going, okay, we got to figure out whose God is ticked. All right, everyone take a straw. And we're just going to like... If, if you're out there, whatever God you are, the person with the shortest stick is going to be the one. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible 
for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And so Jonah says, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. He says this, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. I love this. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? What have you done to make all of this? Because we've done some messed up stuff and none of this has happened to us. What have you done that's caused this? They knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The first step for coming back to our senses is asking why do we run away from God? If you figure that out, take the next step. Take the next step and, and start to reckon, and maybe this step is gonna be the first step for you, but that's seeing the storms as divine wake-up calls. God has brought the storm into Jonah's life, not as, as a punishment, but as a wake-up call, a course corrector. We see this all through scripture. When, when Moses and the Hebrews are leaving, they're exiting out of Egypt, they get to this body of water. They can't do anything about it. They can't stop it. And they're like, we are, we are toast. We're going to die unless something happens to this body of water. And so God shows that he does what, what no one else could do. So why? So they wouldn't get to the other side of this and say, yeah, man, that was totally us. We are like awesome sprinters. We are like military geniuses for evading the Pharaoh and all of his people. No, the miraculous happened so that they would get re-on-ramped to trusting God. When Jesus is taking his disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, why is he allowing storms to hit? When he's sleeping, why? So that when he wakes up and he calms the, calms the sea, everyone, not a single person would say, oh, that was just happenstance. It was just coincidence. The storm was a wake-up call for them to retrust in God because they were freaking out and trusting in their own power. The storms in your life will do the same thing. Some of you are in a storm right now. The storm is when you get found out. It's when you get caught. The storm is when you get broken up with. The storm is when the divorce is filed. The storm is when, when the principal finds out or the teacher finds out. The storm is when you're kicked off the team. The storm is when the anxiety builds to the level that's no longer manageable in your life because you've said yes to too many things. The storms in our life are basically, they're not good, they're bad, but they're the wake-up call to say, what have I done? Why have I allowed my life to get to this place? And the pattern is all throughout scripture. It's all throughout this story, and it's all throughout our life. There's a need. God's not meeting my need, and so I'm going to defy God, and then I end up in the storm. For Jonah, his need is security and peace, maybe even to see his country blessed and no other country. And so all of a sudden, he's called to go and be an ambassador of this good news to this lost people. And so he decides to run the opposite way, and he ends up in a literal storm. For you, it might be something where all of a sudden you're like, you know, for me, I was, I'm someone who, um, I'm stressed, and I've got anxiety. I drink casually, but all of a sudden I'm finding myself drinking more and more. And I'm not just drinking to get through a stressful situation. Now I'm finding I'm, I'm just drinking to get through the day. And all of a sudden, I end up in this storm of addiction. I was lonely and, and, and curious. And all of a sudden, I started to, to step into sexual morality with regard to pornography or with my girlfriend or my boyfriend or whatever. And all, and all of a sudden, now I, I'm, in this, I'm in this storm of addiction or this storm of immorality. And, and all of a sudden, I have a wake-up call. For you, it might be I, I was wounded and I was wronged by somebody. I know that God calls me to forgive this person, but I can't 
Because to forgive them would to seemingly say that what they did was okay, and it was not okay. And so every day I rehearsed the pain over and over again, and now I'm in a storm of bitterness. These storms are not good, but they can serve as divine wake-up calls, where all of a sudden you could say, this, I can't do this anymore. I have to retrust God with my life. I need, I need to get my life worked out so that he is the center and I'm following his lead and I'm not just like running ahead of him and hoping that he's tagging along. Divine storms are wake-up calls in our life. The, the account continues in, in verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. This is the first selfless thing that Jonah has done in this whole story so far. He actually is taking a step of owning what he's done for the benefit of others, really. I mean, here's the crazy thing. It's like he, for the first time, is thinking about these, these sailors. And, and that's, that's actually the next step. If you want to come back to your senses, one of the key things is to begin thinking of someone other than yourself. If you're only thinking of yourself, you will defend, defend, defend the world that you live in. And this is, I've, I've done this. You get super defensive and you don't want to let anyone else call you out or, or make you seem wrong. But on top of that, it's something where you recognize that, that by owning my wrong, it's doing something beneficial to those around me. My spouse, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my friend, my coworker, the people that I spend time with. If you're in a survival situation um, where, where it's, it's precarious at best, like you may not make it out of the survival situation, one of the things they encourage people as a survival skill set is to start to think about the people back home, the friends back home. Keep thinking about them and getting back to them. And that actually gives you the juice to be able to get through a situation and focus on the problem at hand rather than becoming overwhelmed by it. Same is true here. One of the key things that you need to do to come back to your senses is to start to own the wrong that you have, thinking about the people around you. Tim Keller put it this way about that part of the passage. Jonah might have been motivated by pity, but that's far better than contempt. Often the first step to coming to one's senses spiritually is when we finally start thinking of somebody, anybody other than ourselves. One of the key things that got you into the sin pattern that you may be in right now is listening to the enemy's focus on you, a very self-absorbed version of you. And if, as long as you're thinking about yourself, you can justify not repenting, you can justify not changing your life, you can justify continuing to treat the people around you the way you have been treating them. Start thinking about yourself. Now, the next thing we see in this passage is really cool. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. So instead of chucking Jonah overboard, like he even suggested, they want to save his life. Now, who's more godly in this story so far, the pagans or the prophet? The pagans. I mean, they're way more godly. Like, I, I, I'd want my kids to grow up to be like those dudes, not like Jonah. Instead, the men did their best to grow back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then... They took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and get this, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The story so far ends with a bunch of pagans having a worship service to the one true God. 
which shows us something. Even the worst version of us, even our worst decisions are not wasted by the loving God. He takes even your bad moves and converts them into an ultimate good because he's a good God. That's your good God if you're following him. And that's awesome because I love the idea of God blessing my good decisions, but I know that I make a lot of not good decisions, right? Isn't it amazing that we serve a God? This bolsters our trust in him. We serve a God that doesn't just like work through our right moves, but he works through even our, I'm going the opposite direction of what you want me to do moves. Amen? That's awesome. That's so cool. And, and they ultimately have a sacrifice to him. And this is where when we look to Jesus, we see something even better. And where that passage in Romans 12 comes to light. When Jesus said, something greater than Jonah is here. Because Jesus is a better Jonah. Jesus, here's the, the rescue mission what's called to rescue the lost, and he doesn't run away from it. He goes to it full, full force. And not only that, he, doesn't, he's, he is the one that causes in us complete forgiveness and complete fresh start. And if somebody is willing to know the worst in you and forgive them at no cost to you but cost to himself, you trust that person. And we see that in Jesus. The final church, the final way to come to our senses, come back to our senses is based on the facts that you know. You don't know all the answers to all the questions, but based on the facts that you know, truly trust Jesus. If Jesus has a call upon your life, if he wants you to do something, don't second guess it. Say yes to it, step into it. If God is calling you to do something or to stop doing something, and you're like, I don't know, I kinda need this, you don't, you don't. You can trust him first and foremost. I love, uh, someone came up with this statement. I love it. God is with you every step of the way, even when you are running away. For many of you today, you're here. You're killing it because you're here. You're, you're, I mean, you're, you're taking good steps. You're making good decisions. You want to you wanna worship God. That's awesome. But Jonah probably looked pretty awesome on the outside too. All of us, all of us have these internal storms that are happening that we can either ignore or we can look at as divine wake-up calls, course corrections for us to trust Jesus again. I want to end this service uh, simply this way, for us to re-on-ramp back into trusting Jesus with our life completely, not partially. Just as much as he was running after Jonah, he is running after you and after me. And the life that is open to us when we surrender, when we finally surrender, is so good. And for anyone here that's ever surrendered to Jesus, the common sentiment is, why didn't I do this sooner? Let's stand. We're going to close in a song, but I want, to open, I want to close this in a word of prayer to give us an opportunity to do business with God right now. For you to have an opportunity to, to actually just open yourself up to that, to Jesus, to return to your senses as far as trusting in God and second-guessing your own motives, your own desires, your own calls, but trusting God's lead first and foremost. Let's open it. Let's have a time of prayer right now. Lord God, many of us in this room have been running for a long time and it is exhausting. Many of us in this room, God, um, we've been nursing addictions and habits and perspectives holding on to grudges or patterns, God, that completely are rational to us in the moment, completely provide for our needs in the time at hand, but we know, God, are far from you. 
Lord, you, you call us to be living a life of surrender, not a, a hard-hearted life, not a resistant life to you, but an open life to you, to, to live in such a relationship with you like a little kid that trusts their dad. Lord, I pray that we, you, we have that posture with you, that you allow in us to be open to the work that you want. Lord, I pray that we live as a church surrendered in such a way that um, every step and every decision we make, God, is for you. And when we fail, and when we bomb, and when we backslide, and when we, we make calls that are wrong, that we know that you are the God that still is our rescuer, that you re-unwrap us with your grace, and that we can go out with the fullness of life as a result. God, we pray that right now. We give you the thanks and the praise. And all God's people said, amen. Let's sing.